I wasn't sure how many people would come today. Um, people probably heard that Roy and Jinha wouldn't be here because um, of their holiday. I feel like I'm swallowing this microphone. Can you hear me all right? Is that all right? Yep. And so uh, quite some time back I said to Roy, oh, look, um, I don't mind speaking occasionally at church. If you want me to fill in a spot, that's fine. Um, and uh, so we kind of left a little bit open-ended, I suppose. And then uh, probably two months ago, he said, can you come and talk on such and such a date? And I said, sure, why not? What do you want to talk on? I said, oh, I've got a few topics I quite like to think about from time to time. Sometimes I might take a Sabbath school on them or something like that. And uh, one of them might be, um, say, heaven. What is heaven? Another one might be health. Uh, creation is another one of interest. There's about seven or eight, actually about nine topics I added up. And then as I was researching what I was going to talk about today, and I decided to talk about creation, um, and I'm going to give a, a presentation, I suppose, of comparing design uh, with chance. That's what I'm going to be talking about. I thought, well, actually, hang on a minute. Um, I'm going to be talking today. I'm going to talk on creation. And um, as I was researching it, I discovered that today is actually creation Sabbath. Now, I thought, what are the odds of me speaking, considering I don't speak up front normally, what are the odds of it being on this day? What are the odds of it being on this topic? And um, I won't bore you with how I worked it out, but I figured out it was 0.00625% that I would be here today speaking to you about creation when it just so happens to be officially Creation Sabbath. So you make of that what you want. All right. So I do speak publicly quite often, but it's usually in my area of expertise, which is architecture, construction, design, and specifically on timber architecture. So today's topic is not my normal space, if you like. So I have ex- normally I speak off the top of, uh, of my head as I go along. I've prepared a talk, so let's see how we go. If I'm speaking too fast or whatever, just feel free to slow me down. Most people wonder where we come from at some point in their life. The Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's in Genesis 1.1. And in the Genesis record, he lays out a series of steps, a series of actions that he did over a seven-day period. The first three days, as you can see from here, he was making things. The next three days, he was filling the things he made. And on the final day, the seventh day, he rested. Some people take this very seriously. Others don't. They don't think it makes any sense at all. The world's major religions and belief all claim to know where we came from. As you can see from that list, And I don't expect you to read it because there's a lot of words there. There's a lot of people. There's a lot of faiths. Officially, at least, Christianity, Islam and Judaism all have a common belief in God creating the universe, the world and everything that is in it as a distinct creative process. Combined, they make 3.54 million people. Billion, thanks, Sue. Broadly speaking, those that claim to be non-religious, meaning secular, agnostic or atheistic, most likely believe that it was the Big Bang and evolution 
that put us here. Interestingly enough, when you combine those people with that belief, along amongst with the others, basically everybody else who's not Christian, Islamic or, or um, Jewish, you get about 3.256 billion people. So what that says to me is roughly just over half the world believe that God, as presented in the Bible, created the world. The others, they believe in either their own creation myths or it happened by itself some other way. So I thought that was a very interesting comparison. It's around about a 50-50 split. But what do you believe? Well, broadly speaking, there are two options. A creator, where everything was created by an external power, being or action, or everything, whether it be organic or inorganic, just happened without a known first cause. Putting this another way, everything that now exists or has ever existed, has come about, according to that theory, from nothing, by forming itself through a natural process that it did so before it actually even existed. Some say that this is completely nonsensical, yet millions and millions of people actually believe this. As I mentioned earlier, today is the 26th of October, it is officially Creation Sabbath. And as I said, just up until just a couple of days ago, I didn't realise this. But today is the day the Adventist Church officially celebrates and acknowledges God as the Creator and celebrates the wonders of creation. The Adventist Church's official position is that God created the heavens and the earth and everything in them as a distinct creative act over six literal days, and then he rested on the Sabbath. This position is consistent with traditional Christianity's worldview of the biblical account of creation. But what about the other half? What about evolution? Let's look into that, see what it is that they believe. So, evolution, of course, is closely associated with science. But what about science? Doesn't science say that they have proven scientifically that the universe is, in fact, billions of years old and it's a product of something called the Big Bang and that evolution is responsible for every living thing? The theory of evolution is actually a combination of several separate and distinct theories that all need to be in place, operational and somehow acting together. It's a type of framework, you might say, that is used to view or form any theory, evidence or data that is being considered when assessed from an evolutionary standpoint. The evolutionist framework is that Given enough time, anything is possible when combined with a primordial soup, chance 
and probability, beneficial mutations and natural selection. Without all of these factors or elements in place and active, evolution as a distinct theory does not exist. So, does this mean, therefore, that the biblical creation is at odds with science or is being or cannot be assessed with scientific rigour or methodology? No, I don't believe so. In fact, modern science can be used to also consider our origins as presented in the Bible. The biblical creation sequence can be used as a framework to scientifically examine the world. The fact is, both evolutionists and creationists are viewing the very same data. The difference is the framework that they use or their baseline assumptions. There are many, many scientists who are in fact also creationists. Since the medieval period, through the Renaissance, into the age of Newton, in the time of Charles Darwin, and now into the modern period, there are literally thousands of scientists who accept the biblical account of creation. Some of the more famous scientists are Francis Bacon. He was the father of empiricism, which means the scientific method. Now, how ironic is that? He was a creationist, and he is the one who came up with the modern scientific method. He believed scientific knowledge could be based on inductive reasoning and careful observation. Then there's Galileo. I'm sure we've all heard of Galileo. He is famous for physics and astronomy. He is, in fact, known as the father of observational astronomy. Sir Isaac Newton, famous for dynamics, calculus. Oh, I never went through that at school. Gravitation law, reflecting telescopes and understanding the spectrum of light. And there's Carl Linnaeus, a Swedish botanist who created modern classification and the modern method of taxonomy. He is the father of modern taxonomy. This is where we get all of the different naming methods for all of the living creatures. And Louis Pasteur. Of course, we all know about Louis and we're all benefiting directly from his work every time we have a glass of milk because he came up with pasteurisation. He was a biologist. He came up with vaccination and microbial fermentation. So these are just a few names, but for a more extensive list, I'd encourage you to look at one of the creation websites, such as creation.com, Answers in Genesis, or the Institute for Creation Research. I'll put their websites up at the end of today's presentation. So, does science have anything to say about biblical creation? Well, yes, it does. It's even got a name. It's called Scientific Creationism. And it has nine key principles that define its framework. The first one is space, time, matter and energy. Everything that we know in those realms 
it assumes was supernaturally created. The second one is its framework is that biological life was also supernaturally created, functionally and complete. It assumes that the first humans were created in their full form, not as a transitional, through a transitional process, from monkey to man, or another way, from goo to you. It assumes that Earth's prehistory is primarily a record of catastrophic intensities of natural processes, and that's making a direct allusion to the worldwide global flood. It also assumes that the processes that can be measured today operate within fixed natural laws and they are of a uniform and a relatively uniform process rate. It assumes that the universe and life has somehow been impaired from what was originally created in the perfect order. So the world that we see today is not the perfect world. It is in fact digressed from its original created format. And it assumes that the creator remains active in this now decaying creation. And finally, it assumes that people are finite, meaning we can do an intelligent assessment of the evidence that exists around us and it is possible to test, review and complement the historical record as presented in the Bible. So, proof. That's the really hard question, isn't it? Is it possible to prove evolution? Is it possible to prove creation? Can it be proved that the world was created or is it possible for someone to prove that evolution is true? Let's first have a look at what the word proof means. I don't want to play in semantics here, but it's important that we understand this. Dictionary.com defines proof as evidence sufficient to establish a thing as true, to produce belief, or sorry, to produce a belief that it is true. So to repeat that, evidence sufficient to establish a thing as true or to produce a belief in its truth. So, do creationists believe God literally created the universe and everything in it as described in the Bible, including all of its amazing diversity, its ability to adapt within the confines of its genome? Yes, they do. But do evolutionists believe in the Big Bang theory? that it formed the universe and that evolution is responsible for life and its diversity that exists all around. Well, yes, they do. These two positions are actually mutually exclusive, meaning they cannot both be right. Let's look at them side by side and do a comparison. Creation, on your left, it says that everything is in a state of continuing naturalistic form and it's a naturalistic origin. Whereas creation says it's come from, we, everything has come from a completed natural, supernaturalistic origin. So an evolutionist said things are still changing. Whereas a creationist says no, it was created complete 
And it happened supernaturalistically. And evolutionists will argue that there is a net present increase in complexity where things have evolved in a, inverted commas, simple form and have slowly been transitioning through these processes into a more complex form. Whereas a creationist will argue that there is a net present decrease in complexity, that in fact everything is winding down, not up. And the third point is that an evolutionist will assume that Earth's history is dominated by uniformitarianism, whereas a creationist will argue that Earth's history is dominated by a catastrophe, effectively, which was the global flood. So, what evidence does each position present to justify these arguments? Well, there are many aspects in the world that are used to argue either way. Today, I'm going to select just two. One will be design, which is in my area of expertise, and the second will be probability. So design for creation and probability for evolution. So let's look at design. By profession, I am an architect. A major part of my work is to design things. Therefore, without somebody designing something, it would not exist. It's reasonable to assume that when you see a man-made object, then at some point there must have been a designer. Design infers a designer. Now, I'm going to ask you all a question here. What am I holding in my hand at the moment? Any ideas? It's a sculpture. It's a sculpture of a rose. This actually sits in our, in our living room and it was a gift from Torbjorn to Sue. So, as a sculpture of a rose, would you suggest that somebody sculpted this? Yeah, it's reasonable to assume that. We haven't seen the person who sculpted it. I'm holding it here before you as evidence and I'm arguing a position that somebody created this. But what do you think? Well, this of course is a facsimile or a copy of an actual rose. Now, I didn't get a chance to get one today, but if I had a rose and I held it in this hand and I had this sculpture of a rose and I held it in this hand and I said to you, which one was designed? You would probably think that this one was, but is it that big a leap to assume that the actual rose that this is a copy of was designed by a designer? I would argue that it is. In the context of this discussion, I would argue that life always comes from life, just like a design always comes from a designer. Science can actually prove this. It can prove that life always comes from life. 
You see, science has never even come close to proving that life, in even its simplest form, or in all its glorious complexity, can spontaneously occur without a first cause. And the Bible says that first cause was the ultimate designer. I think to believe something that can be the cause of itself, can design itself and create itself before it exists, indeed takes a great faith leap. And that, when you really boil it down to, is the difference between what evolution is proposing and what the biblical account of creation is proposing. But let's now look at the other side of the equation. Let's look at probability, one of those factors that I outlined earlier that exists within the evolutionist model. See, without a first cause, evolution must rely on probability and chance to kickstart its beginnings. This means that the theory of evolution is essentially a numbers game, a numbers game with extraordinarily bad odds. Even the evolutionists are now starting to realise this. In a recent article in The Conversation, which is an online forum for academics to present a whole range of thoughts, theories and ideas, a gentleman by the name of Nick, Nick Longreach, he's a senior lecturer at paleontology and evolutionary biology at the University of Bath, he looked at the cold, hard realities that evolution would have faced if chance would be the first cause of life. Nick calculated, remember he is an evolutionary biologist, that if you consider the chance of life evolving on Earth in the context of its probability of occurring in the entire visible universe, it is likelihood that it is one in 100 trillion. I'm going to write that number down for you just so you get a a sense of what it is. Twelve zeros. One chance. It takes a bit of faith to believe, I think, that one chance in 12, in one trillion, with 12 zeros, is what it would take for the first spark of life to occur. It's ironic, I think, that Nick's baseline framework, that of an evolutionary one, appears to be prohibiting him from considering any other possibility. Now, this is, I think, quite a powerful way to think about it, but let's do another demonstration. I need a volunteer. And I'm going to ask a question in a minute. The question is, can chance enable us to count from 1 to 10? And we're going to test that theory right now. Thanks, Sue. There's my big number. So... Can chance enable us to count from 1 to 10? Let's see a show of hands for, yes, simple, 1 to 10. 
chance surely can allow us to count sequentially. One, two, three, four, to ten. Anybody, really? Four, five? What about, well, I suppose everybody else assumes it's not possible. Or the possibility is so infinitesimally small it's not worth considering. Let's do a quick test. I'll just rub this off the board. This magic hat represents um, the world, in fact the universe. And inside this hat there are some numbered disks from 1 through to 10. So there are 10 disks here, each with their own unique number on. And we're going to do a little exercise. But before we do... If I put these discs in this hat and I have a volunteer who's going to be Sharon was to come up here and she was to randomly select just one the chance of that number coming up and being the number one the first one in our sequence is one in ten. That's not bad odds is it? What number did you get? Um, I think a six. That's a six, yeah. So six. So if we did this exercise ten times of that ten, one of them would come up as the number one. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty good odds. That's not bad, is it? Yep. All right, let's do... No, 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 I'm finished with it, yep. Let's do it a second time. What if we now wanted to pick out number one as our first pick, then we put that number one back in the hat and then randomly pick another one out and want to pick out the number two, the second number in the sequence? What's the chance of that? Let's have a crack. Okay, so put it back. Pick out another one. Eight. Eight, yeah. So it didn't work. Now, from a probability perspective, picking out just the number one, and that's all, was one in ten. But if we now want to pick out number one and number two, then it becomes one in ten times one in ten. Ten to the power of two. So we double the difficulty factor, if you like. Now, if we want to do that again, to one, and then number two, and then number three, we triple the difficulty factor, and so on and so forth. Let's do an exercise. Um, I need someone to come and write something on the board. Um, Dan? Yep, you're the, you're my man. You're simply going to write down the numbers Sharon's going to pick okay. out. Okay. So we're going to do this twice just to see what happens. So we're going to pick out ten. Okay. Yep, pick it out and then call it out. So put it back? Yep. Yeah. Okay. Two. <coughs> Seven. <coughs> Six. She can't pick out 11, so we get legs 11. Two. There's not 11 in there. Two again. Eight. How many numbers have we got so far? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. So two more. Two more. Okay. Three. And five. Okay. So, yep, we'll finish there. Did we get our sequence? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten? We didn't. So we would have to repeat that again if we wanted to 
see whether we could actually get that sequence, correct? Yep. And again. And again. And again. So what's the point of this exercise? The point is that the probability of us selecting one, two, three, four, five in true number order from one through to ten is, are you ready for this? One in ten, five. One in ten, five. One in ten, five. One in ten, one, two, three, one, two, three, four, five. One in ten, five. One in ten. One in ten. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. One more. Or two more. That's the probability. Now what does that look as a number? That is 1 in 10 to the power of 10. That is a very big number. Now, what's the point of me telling you this? You see, I've made a whole stack of assumptions here. Well, one, that numbers even exist in order for me able to get those numbers out. Two, that the number sequence of 1 through 10 is actually significant. Who says that's significant? Maybe it's insignificant. Maybe the value of one random set of numbers, like we chose just then, is of the same value as 1 in 10. But it's not, is it? You see, 1 in 10 actually has a special significance. Numbers in order have a special significance. So when you overlay the chance of getting that significance out, it becomes astronomically large. And that doesn't even answer the question as why does it have significance and where did that significance come from? And that's why we go back to this notion of design and intent. You see, those numbers do have a significance. And when you think about it from an evolutionary perspective, it's asking us to assume that all of the building blocks, the language, the order and the structure that exists in the organic and inorganic world came about through accident, chance and happenstance not through design, intent and purpose. So, question for everybody again. I asked this at the beginning. What do you believe? Well, I don't think I've probably been able to convince someone who has one particular position this way or that way today. It's a lifetime of thinking and and, uh, contemplation. But in your own time, I suggest that you have a think. Where do I come from? And... By extension, what does it all mean? As I said earlier at the beginning, there is actually a huge amount of resources online that you can help to look into what the creationist worldview would present in the context of a scientific paradigm laid up in parallel with the Christian and biblical um, description of where we come from. I'll leave this slide up, and if you're interested, or I'm happy to make this slideshow available to you later on. You're welcome to to come and see me. So I hope that's the end of my talk. It's been of interest. I hope it's challenged your thoughts a little bit and made you think, well, hang on a minute. The predominant worldview out there that we think is the predominant worldview of evolution maybe is not so strong. Maybe it's not so stitched up, if you like. That's the end of my sermon.
I think we have question time. In fact, I know we have question time because I prepared the questions. So I'm really looking forward to hearing what you've got to say. Roy? There's a video. Great. Thanks for listening. Heavenly Father, thank you for your Sabbath day. Thank you for the opportunity to celebrate your creation uh, as you've uh, done it in the most amazing and wondrous ways and you've created us in the most amazing, wondrous way. And especially that you maintain an interest in our lives and that you have a plan for us. So I pray you bless all the heads that are bowed, those that watched online. Thank you again. In Jesus' name, amen.